How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started in our study in First Thessalonians, let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll first have a few moments of silent prayer so everyone can make sure that they are in fellowship and ready to uh, walk, ready to study the word, ready to focus on the lesson uh, that we're going to cover. Scripture teaches that when we sin, it stops our enjoyment of fellowship. It stops our forward momentum in our spiritual life. It stops our forward walk, and we have to recover. That's recovery is simply through confession of sin, which means that we admit or acknowledge our sin to God the Father, and at that instant we are forgiven, cleansed of all unrighteousness, and we can resume having fellowship with God and walking by the Holy Spirit. So let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Fathers, we come together this time to focus upon your word, to study that which you've provided for us in terms of revelation. We pray that we might have a greater grasp and understanding of this epistle that Paul wrote, the very first of his epistles that he wrote to, or the second, rather, of the epistles that he wrote, uh, the first epistle to the Thessalonians, the second uh, epistle overall that we have. And, Father, as we look at this epistle, we see a number of doctrines that are referred to. We see especially a focus upon end times in the last two chapters, but there's a lot to learn from the first part of the the epistle. So, Father, we pray that as we focus upon your word, that God the Holy Spirit would make these things clear to us and help us to see how these principles apply to our own lives and can help us really focus on our spiritual growth and that we might not uh, give in, give up, or just cave in to the pressures of the uh, cosmic system around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And last time was our first lesson in First Thessalonians, and in that I did sort of a overview of the whole epistle, a, a summary. This is so important because again and again I hear from different uh, Christians that they they understand certain doctrines, they understand certain issues, but they don't really have a grasp of what the New Testament teaches. I think this is especially true in the historical area or the biographical area. Uh, it's especially true in the life of Christ. Uh, we have a lot of people just couldn't sit down and give you a summary of the life of Christ. It just seems like bits and pieces, a story here, a story there, and not uh, an understanding of the integrated whole. The same thing is true when it comes to the uh, the lives of some of the apostles, such as Peter and Paul. And, of course, Acts covers a good bit of that. And at the same time that we're studying, we're going to be studying First Thessalonians via these uh, pre-recorded lessons, we're also going to be studying Acts. And it's one of the interesting things that that uh, <clears throat> that's going to take place when you watch this video in just a few weeks is it's going to come very close to when I actually teach Acts 17. 
So we're going to get a little bit of a flyover on Acts 17, 1 through 9, which records the visit of Paul, his first visit to Thessalonica. And then in Acts, when we hit Acts 17 in our Acts study, uh, we'll spend a little more time going through uh, Acts 17, 1 through 9. Background, just a, a summary of what we covered last time on First Thessalonians is that Paul came there on his second missionary journey. This is described in Acts 17, uh, 1 through 9. Uh, here we have a map so that you can become geographically oriented uh, to to the area. The This map covers both the first and second missionary journeys, so the uh, the yellow line and the blue line over in this, the right-hand sec- segment, uh, covers the first, uh, first missionary journey. The purple line here describes uh, Paul's trip on his second missionary journey where he crossed over into Europe for the first time, went through uh, Macedonia, then down through uh, down to Achaia, which is uh, which is uh, Greece itself. Uh, and this is part of understanding some of this uh, ge- geography and history is to understand the breakup of the Greek Empire after Alexander uh, the Great died, uh, and it was split between four. Uh, for generals. Antipater was the first general that got control of basically uh, Macedonia and Achaia, and then Lysimachus uh, picked up control over uh, Thrace and most, uh, about half of of, uh, what is now Turkey or Asia Minor, and then uh, Seleucus picked up the uh, eastern part of Turkey and Syria, and then the Ptolemies took control down in Egypt and fought with the Seleucids uh, over the next uh, couple of hundred years or so uh, over who had control of the area of, of Israel. So this gives us kind of a just an overview here. We see that as Paul originally left Antioch, he revisited the cities of Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch uh, in Pisidia, and then headed uh, north, uh, northwest. Uh, this is where Acts 16 describes the fact that the Holy Spirit prevented them from going into Asia and developing a ministry there to his, uh, left or to, to the west and also from going north and east into Bithynia, Pontus or northern Galatia. He ended up in Troas, which is 25 miles from the ancient city of Troy, ca- caught a ship uh, after seeing a vision from God directing him to go to uh, Macedonia, uh, crossed over by way of Thrace, ended up at Neapolis, which is the harbor on the Aegean Sea for uh, uh, Philippi, and it's uh, t- 10 miles from Philippi. And then from Philippi, he headed, uh, after being uh, beaten up, after being uh, imprisoned there, uh, he and Silas and Timothy left and headed uh East through Amphipolis, Apollonia, and then to Thessalonica. He had a successful ministry there, but he uh, he had a engendered a tremendous uh, antagonism and hostility from the Jewish population in uh, Thessalonica. And the result was that they had to leave town at night, and then they traveled on to the next town mentioned in Acts uh, 17, 5 through 10. Uh, we pronounce it in English uh, uh, Berea or Varia in the Greek. 
And the Thessalonian Jews were so antagonistic to Paul that they followed him on to Berea and continued to cause trouble for him there as well. From uh, Berea, he went on to Athens, and then from Athens, he went on to Corinth, leaving uh, Timothy behind to go back and do some uh, follow-up work in Thessalonica and in Athens. When Timothy rejoined him in Corinth, he gave him a report on how well the Thessalonians were doing, then they had their spiritual growth, uh, the fruit that was being born in their spiritual life, but also that there were some problems because just as Paul faced this hostility and antagonism uh, from the Jewish community in Thessalonica, so too did uh, were the believers there. And so it was important for Paul to remind them that there will be suffering and tribulation in the life of believers. By tribulation, I don't mean, I'm not referring to the great tribulation, I'm talking about opposition, persecution, difficulty in the Christian life. This is one reason why as we read through uh, the first epistle to the Thessalonians, we're going to see a lot of references to enduring hard times, enduring difficulty, enduring persecution. So this this is the background and sort of an overview of the situation in Thessalonica. When we start to study any book of the Bible, it's important to do a couple of different things, one of which was what we did last time in just sort of a bird's-eye view flyover of, of any book. Read it through several times. Come to understand the major people that are involved, the major issues, the major doctrines that are taught. Uh, highlight the key vocabulary, things of that nature, just to get a basic orientation to what is covered in that epistle. And then to re- continue to read it through uh, several times. The second thing that is usually done in an introduction is to just go through the basic introductory material in terms of the background to the epistle, the author, the date, uh, the basic themes, the purpose for the epistle, uh, the theology in the epistle, and to focus on that in a more uh, topical or organized manner. So the first thing we'll look at is the authorship of 1 Thessalonians. The author, as stated in uh 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 1 and again in chapter 2 verse 18 is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, we've studied many times, was uh, Jewish. He was from uh, Tarsus. He was raised in the diaspora and he was from a, uh, a family that sent him as a young man to Jerusalem uh, because of his great intellect and education background at, in Tarsus. They knew that, that he had a special talent and ability in, in logic and in the Old Testament scriptures and in rabbinical tradition. So they sent him to uh, Jerusalem to study under one of the greatest rabbis of all time, Gamaliel, and he excelled at the school of Gamaliel beyond all of the other students in, in Gamaliel's yeshiva. And so the Apostle Paul then grew up. He is zealous, as he tells us, for uh, Judaism zealous for the pharisaical interpretation, and he becomes very hostile to Christians so that he becomes a chief persecutor of Christians uh, within the first year or two after the resurrection and ascension of Christ as the church begins to expand. And he's responsible for, for the imprisonment and execution of a number 
of uh, Jewish believers. At that time, remember, the church is primarily a Jewish church, and so he is instrumental in the persecution of many Jews who have uh, joined this new sect of the Nazarene. He received uh, a letter of authorization from the uh, chief council uh, from the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem to pursue these Jewish Christians in uh, Damascus, goes to Damascus on his way there. Uh, he is confronted by the risen, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, not in a vision, but a. this is the last uh, post-resurrection appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ on the earth to the Apostle Paul, and he confronts Paul, saying, Paul, Paul, why, or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you kicking against the goads? Again and again, he's resisting the convicting ministry of God the Holy Spirit, and it's at that point the Apostle Paul finally uh, breaks down, responds positively to the gospel, recognizes what he had uh, been hearing all along, and that is that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. The Old Testament presents numerous prophecies and promises about God's provision of a future leader of Israel, one who would redeem Israel from their sins and redeem the world from their sins. And so once he uh, is confronted by the risen, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ there on the road to Damascus, then he responded in faith. He is given a mission at that point, and that is to be the apostle to the Gentiles. But that mission to the Gentiles did not mean that he would ignore Jews. He recognized that during this transition period especially, uh, from the time of the death of Christ in A.D. 33 until uh, the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, that the Jews still had an opportunity to respond uh, to the to the gospel message of the kingdom, and that's we've studied that all through the book of Acts. That the message in those early years was still the opportunity to repent for the Jews to repent and turn to Jesus as the Messiah, and the times of refreshing would come. Now. As time went by, we don't have any, that would not have been an immediate thing, but it would have been uh, something that would have, have certainly been more immediate than it's turned out in history. It's been over 2,000 years, or almost 2,000 years since um, the beginning of the church, and so the Lord has not returned uh, yet, but we believe that if Israel had accepted Jesus as Messiah, even in the early church age, uh, then things would have rapidly uh, shifted course. Uh, they did not. So the Apostle Paul is the author here based on the internal evidence of of, of uh, 1 Thessalonians 1.1 1, 1 and 2.18. Internal evidence is simply a term referring to the evidence from within the, the epistle itself. Uh, the vocabulary, the theology, the 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 fact that the that the um, epistle says that it's written by the apostle Paul, all that's considered uh, e- internal evidence. External evidence would be any evidence a- outside of the epistle of First Thessalonians, which gives evidence to Paul uh, having been there or that he could have written this, and that would include uh, the episode described by Luke in Acts chapter 17 as well as any other historical attestation from early church fathers later later on. Generally speaking, external evidence and internal evidence for the Pauline authorship of 1 
Thessalonians is in complete agreement, uh, complete agreement with Acts 17, agreement with what we know of the Apostle Paul. There's nothing there to indicate that it could have been written or was written by somebody else. In fact, for the first uh, 1,900 years or 1,800-plus years of church history, there was no debate over the authorship of any of the Pauline epistles, including First and Second Thessalonians. But remember, in the early 19th, uh, 19th century, there arose this new approach to biblical study called critical scholarship, which also, which is the foundation for what became known as liberal Protestant, uh, liberal European Protestant theology. And basically, in liberal Protestant theology, there was a rejection of the authority of Scripture. There was an application of the concept of evolution, uh, evolutionary ideas to religion, evolutionary ideas to the development of the New Testament. The assumption was not that the Word of God, that the New Testament is what it says it is until you find evidence to the contrary. The assumption was that nothing here is what it claims to be unless you find hard evidence that it actually is. So that was the view of uh, your of basically liberal Protestant theology, was that this whole thing was made up. It couldn't have possibly been uh, written by the people who claimed to have written it. They were too ignorant at that time to have written something like this, or that uh, the miracles could not have taken place. That's a violation of everything we know from reason and science. And so their assumption was it wasn't valid at all unless you could prove it beyond any historical shadow uh, of a doubt. And so from that vantage point, they questioned and doubted everything. They questioned and doubted all all of the authorship, Pauline authorship, Lucan authorship, uh, Matthean authorship, Johannine authorship. All of that was just assumed to be uh, the product of legend that later on, People after 150, 200, 300 years of Christianity wrote the, finally wrote these legends down, and then the New Testament came into effect, but not until about 250 or 300. Historically, we now have evidence from archaeology and from other ancient writings that shows that that's completely false. And in fact, there are were, were even some liberals, uh, for example, John. Uh, Robinson wrote a book called Honest to God, uh, John, which basically is a foundation of the uh, death of God theology. He came out in the early 60s saying all the New Testament was actually written a little bit earlier than conservatives have claimed. So uh, liberals have been forced by the evidence to re-examine uh, their belief, and today virtually no one doubts Pauline authorship of the Thessalonian epistles. There's still a few people who doubt Pauline authorship of some of the other epistles, but uh, for the most part, uh, it's, it's very rare to find anyone today doubting Pauline authorship of First or Second Thessalonians. Now, why in the world would somebody question Paul's authorship? Well, let me give you three reasons that were frequently cited. First of all, some said, well, it's not as doctrinally focused as some of his other epistles. And if it was really the Apostle Paul, then it would just be, be dense with doctrine. And that just, uh, as, as is typical of a lot of the reasoning from liberal Protestant theology, uh, they're just assuming that whatever characterizes one thing must characterize everything. Often they come along with vocabulary studies. This is especially true with the use of, of computers and the 
in the twentieth century where they say, see, in 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 Romans and Galatians and these books, they're rich with vocabulary relating to justification and sin and sanctification, but you don't find that kind of vocabulary in Thessalonians, so maybe it wasn't written by Paul. They, they re- ignore the fact that there are different scenarios, different reasons, different audiences that these epistles are written to, and so they're not always going to talk about the same thing. In fact, the conservative view is that within the uh, body of Paul's letters, they're going to address the whole realm of doctrine, and Paul does not address, for example, eschatology. This gets to the second reason that Paul's authorship is doubted, uh, that Paul doesn't spend a lot of time in Romans or Galatians or Colossians on, on future things, on eschatology, but that's what's written, what's covered in First and Second Thessalonians. So when those are included within the body of Paul's epistles, then you have Paul addressing all areas of theology. It's not necessary for Paul Paul's letters to always cover the same basic things. The first reason, as I said, for questioning Paul's Paul's authorship was it's not as doctrinal as others. But uh, and again, that varies from epistle to epistle. There's not as much doctrine in Philemon. There's not as much, perhaps, in Second Corinthians. But also you have to look at what they mean by the use of the word doctrine. Uh, they, some are more personal than others. Some are more uh, didactic and polemic than others. In fact, First Thessalonians has hardly any polemics in it. By polemics, I mean where he's interacting with a lot of false teaching. First Thess primarily focuses on encouragement, and then in the last two chapters on preparation uh, for uh, the rapture and the end times to be alert and to be awake. The second reason for questioning Pauline authorship is what I alluded to already, and that is that there's a heavy emphasis in both First and Second Thessalonians on future things or uh, what is known in theology as eschatology. That is not emphasized in other Pauline epistles, so liberals came along and say, see, if it was Paul... He wouldn't be talking about eschatology. Well, see, they're, they're assuming something that's not in evidence as they approach this, and that is that, that Paul is only interested in soteriological issues and not in eschatological issues. And so this is, uh, uh, completely false, and it has a very superficial, shows a very superficial, shallow view of the Apostle Paul. Others, uh, contend that uh, Paul could not have written this epistle because they claim there were certain differences between what is reflected in Acts, assuming that he was only in Thessalonica for the, the three weeks that, that are mentioned in Acts uh, 17. Acts 17 says that Paul came into Thess- uh, Thessalonica. He went to synagogue on the first Shabbat and reasoned over a period of three Shabbats with the synagogue. And then it doesn't go on much beyond that. So there have been some people who say, see, he was only there for about three or four weeks at the most, so he couldn't have covered all of this. And the reality is he was probably there for much longer, but uh, maybe three or four months, but Luke only focuses on the opening part because the emphasis in Luke is on the the the, the, the start of the persecution of Paul and how that developed and running him uh, running him out of town. So even though uh, Acts 17 seems to indicate or just describe what went on during the first three weeks, it doesn't at all indicate that he was only there 
uh, for those three three weeks. And it, uh, the starting point is in a, uh, a Jewish synagogue, so that initially the, res- the, the responders were Jewish, but once he left the synagogue, there was a, a, a tremendous number of Gentiles who joined the congregation, which is the same kind of thing we saw in our study of Acts when we looked at what happened in, in uh, Antioch, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. So that the churches in transition starts with a core group of Jewish background believers, and then there's a transition as the gospel goes to Gentiles, and a number of Gentiles then respond to the gospel. So authorship for sure is the Apostle Paul. Second issue in an introduction is the date and location, the date and location. In other words, when did Paul write it and where did he write it from? He wrote it approximately late, uh, late 50, more likely early 51, uh, A.D. 51, probably in January of that year, uh, as we see in... Um, in this map, he left, he went to Thessalonica here, then uh, after he was there for about three months, he probably arrived sometime in late October, early November of 50, and he was there for two or three months, which means he leaves somewhere uh, in, in late January or February, went to uh, Berea first, and then south to uh, Athens, and then to Corinth, and it's from Corinth that he writes this epistle. So it could be somewhere on uh, February of 51 to spring of uh, of um, 51 uh, or even early summer. Sometime in there is when he writes this, uh, the first, first epistle, and then it's a couple of months later he writes the second epistle. And so he's writing from Corinth back to uh, Thessalonica. He's writing to, now once we cover date and location, the thing is, the next question is, to whom is he writing? Who are the recipients of the epistle? And this is clearly stated again in the first verse. He's writing to the church in Thessalonica, the body of believers there, who by this time are primarily Gentiles, though there's still an element of, uh, of uh, Jews, a segment of Jewish background believers there. He did not get as much of positive a response from the Jewish community here as he had in some other places. I think that he had a larger response in some places, although it was never large. There was always a hostile reaction and a reaction that was stirred up by troublemakers, those who were in their arrogance uh, became extremely uh, hostile, if not violent, in regard to the Apostle Paul and his message. So he's writing to these Christians in Thessalonica, and this city, I'll get into some things about the city in a little bit, was the capital of Macedonia and one of the most significant cities in Greece. It had a population at that time of approximately 200,000. So it's on a major trade route, as we see from this uh, this map. We see the yellow line going from east to west is the Ignatian Way or Via Ignatia. This is a major east-west trade route for commercial goods. Uh, Thessalonica also is on a harbor, major harbor in, uh, in Greece. So there are uh, goods that are being brought in by ship and then can be offloaded and then put into caravans that would travel east into the Orient or west uh, back across northern Greece and up in, up into Europe. So this is a major economic hub and is central to 
central to the region and the capital of this area, uh, the capital of this area of Macedonia. The purpose that Paul writes has to do with the circumstances and situation back in uh, Thessalonica. Uh, they, he's heard from Timothy that the Thess- Thessalonians are strong in their faith and that their faith, the word about their faith, has gone out to various uh, others in the uh, in the region so that they're developing a reputation uh, for uh, their faithfulness to the word and their study of the word. Uh, they're also facing a lot of opposition, and so there's always the threat of them giving up and caving in to uh, the desire just to get along with those around them. So the Apostle Paul needs to encourage them. The first part of this epistle, therefore, is uh, more personal in terms of a personal challenge uh, to them in light of what God, the work that God has already begun uh, in that congregation. So it is a letter of encouragement, a letter to challenge them to uh, be steadfast, to persevere in their uh, spiritual walk. So what Paul does at the beginning is he reminds them of the way they had received the gospel. He's reminding them of what uh, God had already begun in their life. He reminds them of the things that they had seen. In verse 5, for example, he says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only. In other words, in that context with the way the uh, philosophers in Greece operated, it was just more of an academic thing of an intellectual curiosity and developing um, some sort of intellectual skill and appeal. So he's saying it's not just a matter of coming uh, in word only or just a message, but... It included, it was associated with the power, power of the Holy Spirit. They saw changed lives, changed people, and the power of the Holy Spirit was definitely present. And they had a, came with an inner conviction of their salvation. So as I pointed out last time, uh, the Apostle Paul and his style in First Thessalonians, much like Jude in his style, and Jude uses these triplets. So we have power and coming in power, the Holy Spirit, and assurance. These three things together, and they uh, received the word even in much affliction, verse six, and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So they're definitely facing opposition, and they're facing a certain amount of hostility. And part of that hostility involved a certain amount of criticism of the Apostle Paul and his ministry in Thessalonica. And one thing's for sure, the more that you stand for the truth in a pagan-rich environment, and even though Jews aren't pagans, they are... Uh, there are, they are rejecting the truth of God's word at this point and therefore hostile to the message of truth, the message of the gospel. And whenever you're in that kind of an environment and you're standing for the absolute truth of scripture, you will become a target and there will be opposition. And so they are facing strong opposition just as Paul had experienced it in uh, other areas. He experienced it in uh, Philippi with the Gentiles there. He experienced it in Thessalonica, and he experienced it to some degree in Corinth. So he is writing to them while he's down in Corinth, having gone through 
uh, several months of opposition, several months of hostility, times when he was beaten, times when he was put in prison, times when he was put in jail. He's been kicked out of uh, the, the synagogues a couple of times, and so he's writing from that vantage point, encouraging them as a, someone else who goes through this hostility and opposition to stay with it, not to give up, and not to give in to the desire to just... Uh, uh, do something to get along and to end all of the all of the hostility. The Apostle Paul then will connect in the first three chapters as he reminds them of the impact the gospel had on them initially, and then in the second chapter uh, he gets into Timothy's ministry with them, the impact of the gospel in their lives while, while Timothy was with them. By the time we get to chapter 4, he's connecting that to uh, the rapture and to the second coming so that there is a, a major theme in the epistle to be alert, to persevere, to be ready because Christ could come at any time and we have to be ready for the rapture, ready and prepared for uh, the next life and what will come after the rapture at the judgment seat of Christ and our preparation for uh, the eternal kingdom. So that is a very present reality uh, for the Apostle Paul. Now, in terms of the uh, setting, the background, understanding a little bit about Thess- Thessalonica, I want to start off and just show you a couple of pictures to give you an idea of w- what this place is like. First of all, going back to the map, I want to remind you of its location. It's on a harbor. It's on a major trade route, and therefore it is centrally centrally located and has a great uh, uh great commerce and economic value. It was uh, The city was founded in 315 B.C. by Cassander, who was one of Alexander the Great's, uh, or the son of one of Alexander the Great's generals and was associated with the, the, um, the heirs of the Greek Empire. As I stated earlier, Alexander the Great's empire was split between uh, four generals. Antipater was the general who uh, took control of Greece, of Macedonia, and uh, Achaia, and Cassander. It was his one of his sons. He founded the city in 315 BC, named it after his wife, who was the daughter of Philip II of Macedonia and a sister of Alexander the Great. Originally, this t- there was a small town here, a settlement called Therma. Uh, today, the town is known as Salonika or in some times uh, Thessalonica, uh, and it is uh, a major, major city in, in Greece. During World War II, there was a very large Jewish population there, and 60,000 of whom were uh, killed in the Holocaust. Uh, the gulf on which it's located, we'll see a picture of it here, is the Thermic Gulf. Remember the uh, original uh, city was that was a very small settlement that was there was called Therma before it was established as a as a, a major city by Cassandra, and it was located on the the Thermic Gulf, which gave it a major uh, seaport. It was second only to the seaport in Corinth. Today we have a few archaeological remains, but most of them are buried under the city. And um, here we have a picture of the uh, Thessalonica Forum with the Odium. The Odium is the uh, 
the theater in the background. You can see the uh, the the seating back here. Uh, here's a picture of it again. See, see now you see what it looks like where the stage is, and this is in the background. So this gives you a picture of the uh, eastern end of the of the forum. This was uncovered uh, as the uh, bus station was uh, torn down to have a new bus station built in 1962. And when they started the excavation for the new bus station, they discovered uh, these ruins. So it suddenly became an archaeological site, and they began to uh, uncover it. But much of ancient Thessalonica is located under the modern city of Thessalonica. As you can see from uh, this picture, there are many, many buildings uh, located all around uh, Thessalonica. Here's a picture again showing you the density of the population and what the area looks like. You can see just to the left of this picture uh, some of the uh, ruins that have come up. These are some uh, Byzantine walls that were constructed sometime later. So the city has had a rather, rather rich history. As I stated earlier, in terms of the um, in terms of the background, it was <clears throat> established by Cassander in 316 BC and incorporated the small settlement of Therma as well as 25 other other cities. Its location made it vital for as a seaport for Macedonia and had developed uh, quite a bit by the time that the Apostle Paul arrived, so that the population there. Uh, by the time of the first century, was 200,000. It was uh, located at the intersection of two major Roman roads, the one uh, leading uh, east and west, the Via Ignatia, as well as another that came down from the north, uh, from the area of the Danube and in the northwest up into Europe down to the Aegean so that uh, it was a center for much commercial traffic. It, that brought a lot of uh, economic growth to the city. It had a lot of jobs. It had a lot uh, of wealth. So it's important not only politically because it's the capital of, uh, of this, er- this region of Macedonia, but it's also significant for uh, trade and economic development in that area. Historically, this was a site of uh, a lot of different his- significant figures. Uh, Cicero spent six months of his exile in Thessalonica in 58 B.C., where he wrote 18 of his letters, for which he is known. Uh, Pompey, Roman general, stayed there in 49 B.C. when he was fleeing from Julius Caesar. And then after the famous battle at Philippi, where uh, Cassius and Brutus were defeated by Mark Antony and Augustus, Thessalonica was made a free city, and it became a Roman colony by the 3rd century A.D., so it is a significant uh, town. Later on in the post-biblical era, it was uh, besieged by the Goths in the 3rd century A.D. They built some new walls eventually after the uh, uh, Christianization of the Roman Empire under Constantinople. Uh, the city continued to maintain its prominence. Uh, it also uh, had prominence in the in the Ottoman Empire for a while. It was under the control of the uh, Muslims, and Suleiman the Magnificent renovated many of the walls, which is what you see there today. In modern times, there was a, a fire that destroyed much of the city in 1917, so it was then uh, rebuilt. 
and most of the uh, ruins or most of whatever's left of the first century city is under the, the modern city. Biblically, it's significant because it was one of the places where the Apostle Paul went with Silas and Timothy, establishing a church there. And from there, there a number of believers went out having ministries in other areas. There are some who are mentioned, uh, Aristarchus and Secundus are mentioned in Acts 19.29, Acts 20, verse 4, as two of Paul's tra- uh, traveling companions uh, on his missionary journeys as they were Thessalonians. Uh, Aristarchus is also mentioned later in Acts 27.2 and Colossians 4, verse 10, as well as in Philemon 24 as one of Paul's traveling companions. So the, the church, the congregation there produced a number of leaders who responded to the Apostle Paul's challenges and were also uh, part of his entourage as he traveled on his missionary journeys. Uh, two epistles are written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Thessalonica, from which we learn a lot about biblical prophecy, especially the rapture in First Thess 4, uh, the day of the Lord in First Thess 5, and the Antichrist and some of the chronology related to the rise of the Antichrist in Second Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. Basically, if we look at the organization and structure here, this is a basically a good chart. I'll get some of these printed out so people can look at it. This is from the Walk Through the Bible book called Through the Bible, and they have some good charts that synthesize uh, the organization, and this one is generally uh, pretty helpful and pretty accurate. It focuses on, if, you, if we work from the bottom up, it's, it gives us the date, of um, A.D. 51, tells us the place. It's written in Corinth, shows that it's divided between chapter 3 and chapter 4. The first three chapters look back on the work that God had accomplished in the congregation at Thessalonica under Paul and then Timothy, and then chapters 4 and 5 look forward to end-time events so that the first three chapters focus on a more personal uh relationship between the Apostle Paul and the Thessalonians, and then the uh, next part is more practical in terms of its challenge to to them to stick with it, to persevere in the Christian life uh, in light of the coming of Christ and in light of the future end-time events. If we look at the basic outline, uh, basic outline here is pretty good going from uh, left to right. I'm just going to add a little bit. It says that the first section, 1, 1 through 10, is Paul's commendation of their growth. And this is uh, essentially a good summation. In chapter uh, 1, verse 1, there's a the, your, your introduction or salutation. 2 through 10, we have a, a commendation of the way they responded to the gospel and and the work that God the Holy Spirit had begun in their Christian, uh, in their Christian life. Chapter two, uh, they state Paul's founding of the church and this is where Paul defends his ministry to, against the criticisms that have been leveled against him by reminding them of the circumstances that occurred when he founded the church. This is one one place, along with 2 Corinthians, where Paul responds to a lot of the criticism against him, and so he takes the time to remind them 
of the evidence of God's work in their life uh, when he first came among them. And then from chapter 2, verse 17 to the end of chapter 3, Paul reminds them of the impact of Timothy's ministry among them. Then we get to the second half, the instructions, uh, as they label it. This is really challenges to them in terms of sticking with the Christian life. Uh, for 1 through 12, there are specific uh, directions, and I would say this is where God, where Paul gives them God's expectations for their personal spiritual growth in the first 12 verses of chapter 4. And the rest of chapter 4, 13 through 18, there's new revelation concerning the rapture of the church, and this informs them that the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Uh, the chapter 5, 1 through 11, focuses on the day of the Lord, which is what happens after the rapture uh, in the tribulation period. And then in chapter 5, verses 12 through 24, there's a, a number of specific uh, challenges and commands to each individual uh, each individual believer. So this gives us a general understanding of the overview of the book, and then to re- kind of wrap things up um, in terms of our understanding of the basic theology of the book. Uh, first of all, in uh, in First Thessalonians, we learn uh, about God in terms of the uh, nature of God, that the emphasis is in uh, chapter 1, verse 9, that there is one living and true God. This states part of the purpose of the epistle, and 1, 9 is an important verse where he says, they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you, one, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's sort of a purpose statement for this epistle. So we learn about God in terms of theology proper, the reference to God as the living and true God who has loved men and women, verse 4, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God that is uh, in Christ, uh, and that uh, God is concerned about um, and has revealed himself to them, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 13. For this reason, also, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. Again, connecting God with truth and the message of the gospel. And also, uh, this will emphasize something about salvation in terms of faith alone by the last, by the last phrase. In terms of uh, revelation about Jesus Christ, he focuses on a number of things related to Jesus Christ, specifically in verse uh, 10, as I pointed out. Uh, that we're waiting for his son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, emphasis on the resurrection, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And here that term orge, when it's associated with the future tense of to come, is not talking about the present divine discipline on unsaved people upon a world of negative volition, but it relates to that future period known as Daniel's 70th week. In terms of the Holy Spirit, we see that uh, the Holy Spirit uh, imparts joy, imparts truth in terms of uh, the the uh, agent of revelation, 
and prophetic insight, prophetic revelation. Uh, this is seen in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 6, and uh, the joy of the Holy Spirit is mentioned, 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 8, where we have a reference to, uh, <clears throat> therefore he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has given us his Holy Spirit. So that talks about the indwelling and revelatory aspect of the Holy Spirit. And then again in chapter 5, uh, verse 19, uh, don't quench the Spirit, talking about the role of God the Holy Spirit in the present church age. In terms of sanctification, the Apostle Paul emphasized the importance of living a holy life or de- growing in our sanctification in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verse 3, as well as in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. Uh, the gospel is mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 1, 5 in terms of its impact, the way they received it. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and much assurance. It's mentioned again in 2, 2 through 4, even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation not come from error uh, or uncleanness, nor is in deceit, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our heart. Uh, it's also mentioned in 2.8 that they were um, imparting the gospel of God, but also th- themselves, and in uh, chapter 3, verse 2, the word gospel again is mentioned. So uh, there's this emphasis on the gospel. And then the greatest area of doctrine that is going to be covered in this book has to do with the uh, future second coming, I mean future coming of Christ at the rapture and then what happens after the rapture at the day of the Lord. So it is in this epistle that we learn more about the rapture or the, and Christ's second coming than any of Paul's other other epistles. Now, just bef- as we wrap up in this uh, opening message, I want to go to the background, which in Acts chapter 17, which focuses on Paul's initial visit to Thessalonica. Uh, this is in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9, describing that particular episode. Now, what's important to remember, I think, is the context as Luke is giving us this sort of travelogue of the Apostle Paul as he goes first to uh, to, to Philippi, and then he uh, meets this hostility in Philippi. He's in prison. Uh, they're miraculously freed from prison, but they also have been uh, beaten badly uh, by their uh, captors, and they should not have been. And uh, as they... We read about this in verse, uh, in chapter 16, verse 22. The multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. So they have been beaten. They're bruised. Uh, uh, very badly. They, they're not going to be a pleasant sight after they've spent this time uh, in the jail and having been, been beaten. And so they leave Philippi in that condition, and it's only about a three- or four-day walk uh, from there uh, to uh, Thessalonica. It's 32 miles 
from Philippi to uh, Amphipolis, which probably would have been covered in a day or a day and a half. It's another 25 miles to uh, Apollonia. Let me put this uh, up on the screen so we can look at the map again. Um, put this map up because it shows the relationship here from Philippi to Amphipolis was 32 miles. Then from Amphipolis to Apollonia was another uh, 25 miles. And then from Apollonia to Thessalonica, uh, going over this uh, mountain ridge here uh, took was another 40 miles. So this would have taken uh, maybe four days at the most to have made that journey. And so their bruises just would have been uh, nasty-looking gray and yellow by this time, so they wouldn't have been one of the most attractive uh, uh, traveling groups by this time. Uh, we read in chapter 17, verse 1, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. I think it's important to note that that here uh, Luke mentions a synagogue, whereas in uh, Philippi there was not a synagogue. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them. This was his normal uh, operating procedure that he first went to the Jews, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. He went to the Jews first and gave them an opportunity to respond to the gospel. And for three Sabbaths, it says that he reasoned with them. This is a Greek word, dialogomai, where we get our word dialogue, but it is a technical term for laying out a rational case for something where he is building a case for the for Jesus of Nazareth being the Messiah. And for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. That was his authority. He's reasoning from the Scriptures. Now, what Scriptures does Paul have? He's got the Old Testament. Once again, he's going back to Old Testament Scriptures to show and to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah. I think that's very important because we live in an era today, as I've mentioned before, where there are a number of uh, evangelical scholars who reject the idea that there are messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Now, there's really a tradition of this going back to the Protestant Reformation, because at the time of the Protestant Reformation, there were a number of of the Reformed theologians, the Reformers Calvin and, and others, who learned Hebrew by studying with the rabbis, and they picked up some some false interpretation from the Old Testament, some interpretation that went back uh, to a rabbi uh, from about the 11th century A.D. who had pretty much gone through and re-articulated a lot of the Old Testament messianic prophecies that had always been understood by the Jews as as being messianic, and he reinterprets them, goes by the nickname of Rashi. Rashi reinterprets those prophecies so that they're fulfilled historically and not uh, not um, to be necessarily future with the with the Messiah. So we have a passage like this. We have passages like at the end of Luke when Paul when uh, uh, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus with uh, two of his disciples, and he and he goes through the scriptures all the way through the Old Testament, showing how uh, he fulfilled all of these messianic prophecies. You wonder how anybody can do that. But we live in an era today when uh, people are more impressed with new theories and new ideas than they 
are with really studying the scripture. Scholarship today is no longer somebody, I mean, in, in evangelical circles, is nobody, no longer somebody who's a man of the word, who really knows the Bible and can really argue from the Bible. It's somebody who knows all the different interpretations, what all the different commentators have said, rather than really knowing the text. In fact, uh, I've had a conversation with at least one Dallas Seminary professor today who claims that the old guard, Walverd, Ryrie, Chafer, Pentecost, Toussaint, these guys weren't scholars at all. Uh, they just they they just taught the Bible, but they weren't scholars. So they've redefined the term today, and this this is extremely tragic because we're in evangelicalism. And I've taught this for 35 years now. Evangelicalism today has slipped into a form of scholasticism or rabbinic theology, where we argue more what theologians and pastors say than from the Word of God. Well, so-and-so says this, and so-and-so says this, and MacArthur says that. Nobody knows what the Bible says. They just know what these different pastors or professors or scholars have said. And uh, this gets us away from the from the Word. But the Word clearly indicates that the Old Testament revealed the Messiah. And so verse 3 of this chapter says, explaining, demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying that this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Messiah. So Paul clearly understood that the Old Testament predicted the suffering of Christ, the suffering of the Messiah, and the resurrection of the Messiah. And so the result is that some of them were persuaded, and then as a result of that, um, they believe. See, he's uh, Paul, is verse 3, is explaining and demonstrating and and the word for explaining means is the word dianoigo, which means to open up their mind. So he is opening up the word so that they can think about it in terms of the claims of the Old Testament. And the second word to demonstrate is another technical term in logic, which means to demonstrate your argument logically. So he's logically demonstrating this from the scripture that Jesus is the Messiah. As a result, some were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greeks. These are those who are not quite full proselytes, but they're associated with the synagogue, they're God-seekers, and they become believers at this time. But notice the difference. Some of the Jews are persuaded, and a great multitude of the of the Gentiles. So it's primarily going to be a Gentile congregation. And some of the leading women, this refers to women in the uh, sort of the aristocracy or, or, or upper crust of society in Thessalonica. But then we have a contrast in verse 5, the Jews who were not persuaded, this would be the majority in the congregation, uh, in the synagogue, became jealous, uh, envious, and took some of the evil men from the marketplace. So they go out and they get the uh, the, the drunks and the homeless and the uh, uh, the criminal element that hangs out around the uh, the agora, the marketplace, and they in, incite them and stir them up to uh, assault or to create a riot in the city, and they attack the house of Jason, uh, which is where the Apostle Paul and Silas were staying and where they were looking, trying to get them to bring them out to the people where they could beat them and kill them. Uh, verse 6 tells us when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other, some of the brethren, some of the other Christians, to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. So apparently they've heard about Paul and others from 
those in Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and as well as in Philippi. So they accuse Jason of harboring these men, accuse them of traitors, and that they are acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, worshiping another another king, uh, which is Jesus. And then um, verse 8 says, They troubled the crowd, the rulers of the city, when they heard these things. When they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let, let them go. Then, as a result of that, verse 10, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night, to Berea. So that's all that we see dealing with their time in Thessalonica. And then they move on. So next time we'll come back, we'll look at the first chapter, start getting into the message of First Thessalonians. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word. May, be, may we be encouraged as the Thessalonians were encouraged by our study of this epistle and that we might respond to this challenge that no matter how intense opposition, difficulty may come in our Christian life, that we will continue to pursue the truth and pursue spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.